welcome once again to Cinemaholics, the major motion podcast, where we talk about the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online. From the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm John Agurney, film editor for InBetweenDrafts.com. And from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he's a freelance film writer, and his name is Will Ash. Uh, actually, that's classified. Will Ash, don't, don't do that. Don't jump off that cliff. Oh, uh, man. But uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah, it's good to see you so soon after our last what, what do you mean? Our last recording? What? Uh, oh, because this episode is probably not going to come out until a few days removed. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, in a matter of uh, speaking, I'm going to be on uh, Ghost Protocol next week. I mean, speaking of a joy ride, mm. there's more of those in this movie than... <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to be uh, away next week. So uh, thankfully, this movie came out uh, kind of early. So I got to see it sooner than I thought and uh, had the chance to talk about it with you right now. That is the case. We're talking about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, seventh film in the Mission Impossible franchise. Very fun franchise for pretty much anybody who grew up with like James Bond movies and the Mission Impossible movies are kind of like our American, you know, or the Mission Impossible. It's like not American James Bond. That's reductive, but... I don't know. It, it's a little bit more American adjacent, a little bit more extreme and over the top. Tom Cruise has always been Ethan Hunt in these movies, right? And uh, I, I, I don't know because we have talked about Mission Impossible. We talked about Fallout when I came out in 2018. But uh, did, did we ever talk about the TV show, like the Mission Impossible show? Like, did you ever watch that? No, I have not. I think I saw like a little bit of it. You You're know, about the the one that's like from the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never saw it. I mean, I think it, it is fascinating to me that the uh the first movie takes the protagonist of that film or that show i mean uh it just decides hey he's gonna be the villain yeah that's uh, pretty cool yeah yeah it's an interesting yeah, ask me and i feel like that would have been like super mind-blowing you know if i had grown up with the show but to me mm-hmm. it did, yeah but uh but no it's a, definitely a cool ballsy idea uh for the film when we did talk about fallout we ranked them, you know, like the Mission Impossible movies. I think we had, uh, I, I actually, I don't rewatch these movies often. I, I think I'm going to before part two of Dead Reckoning. But I think I've only seen all these movies once, except for the second one and the first one. First one I've seen like twice. Second one I've seen like 220 times. And third one I've seen two times. And mm-hmm. then all the other ones, like from Ghost Protocol on, I just saw it once and was like, these movies are cool. Uh, I still... I still like Fallout the best. Like, I think that movie is just like number one. You know, maybe part two of Dead Reckoning will take it over, but I mean that it has a, a high, high cliff to climb. And I think you you had similar rankings to me. I want to say I'd have to dig back into the archive. Yeah, I mean, I'm not exactly sure um, where I would have ranked the the films, but um, yeah, I mean, I will say uh, I know I rewatched them. Prior to Fallout, um, Fallout and this new one are the only ones I've seen just once. Uh, but the first Mission Impossible, I, I'm pretty sure I've seen like four or five times at this point. I rewatched it before this movie because of all the connections to uh, this uh, this previous uh, the first one and then this one, um, which was a very rewarding rewatch for me. Uh, not only because uh, I, it grew in my appreciation. I feel like the last time I saw it, I was a little caught up in like the dated technology and kind of like some of the goofy choices they made but this time i was really just caught up with how much of a brian de palma movie it is mm-hmm. and also just like how like slick and kind of simplistic and just uh pulpy it is and just the the way that uh de palma is able to take his classic voyeuristic lens and incorporate into this kind of soon to be uh iconic film franchise i i do really miss the sort of like exquisite corpse aspect of the Mission Impossible films where like each director kind of similar like to the Alien franchise would kind of take the property and kind of put their own artistic spin on it. Um, I, I think that is something I, I kind of miss when Macquarie kind of became the de facto director of the Mission Impossible films. But then I was also thinking about it. And maybe even I said this, I don't know if in the follow-up review, but I feel like the true author of this franchise is ultimately Tom Cruise. Yeah, I think we both have said that. He's like the shadow director. Well, not only in that sense, but like, I mean, he's the main producer. And I just feel Mm -hmm. like the journey of the Mission Impossible films is very reminiscent of like where Tom Cruise has been as a movie star over the past 20, nearly 30 years now. 
And I feel like each of these films and their different time period kind of just picked who he is and what he wants to represent uh, as a movie star and as maybe even as a person. Hey, like what is Mission Impossible 3 if not him processing his breakup with Katie Holmes? Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's kind of what uh, what that would be Mission Impossible 2. Uh, being like divorced, uh, with John Woo, I guess. Is that what well, you're the saying? The second one, I think the second one's speaking more to his Nicole Kidman days, isn't it? Yeah. If we're getting the timelines up in a, up, okay. Up in is that what you didn't say Nicole Kidman? No, well, I said Katie, Katie Holmes is the Mission Impossible 3 one oh, where he's oh. married to a, yeah yeah yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. But then that, that makes Mission Impossible 4 him divorced from, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Holmes. You got there eventually. <laughs> yeah, trying. I mean, what I do like about uh, I, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things I like about Ghost Protocol, but um, what they I like is that like there's a kind of idea in there, like all right, Tom is back, but he kind of needs to reclaim his image, and also we're gonna have him kind of passing the torch over to the next generation, which is Jeremy Renner, and then like Rogue Nation is kind of like. Yeah, he's around, but no, I'm still keeping the torch. That's that's all me. And then he doesn't even come back for whatever Fallout and um, this new one. So, yeah, I just think it's kind of fascinating that, like, yeah, it was like... They might have had him come back, but I think uh, his accident might have gotten in the way. I don't know for sure. I'm just speculating. Uh, but I feel like this would have been in post by the time uh, Renner would have had the accident. So I, I don't think that was a factor in it. Uh, I could be, could be wrong. I have no idea. I mean, I'm just thinking of also there is part two, right? Because they 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 did these movies around the same time, but I don't know if the timelines totally match up. So sure. Um. So that is in post, right? The second one. I believe so, but I don't know for sure. Okay. But yeah, no. I mean, that's uh. I think that's part of the beauty of uh, these Mission Impossible movies is that you know outside of like your kind of usual Hollywood attempt to kind of cash in on a um you know, bankable, long-running TV show. This one has served as kind of a uh, monumental franchise for Tom Cruise star power, not only in the sense of, like, him trying to maintain it and then reclaim it in, uh, you know, going into the 2000s and then, like, the 2010s, but also just, like, him now kind of feeling like he is, like, the savior of cinema or, like, you know, like, the traditional film experience and trying to, like, kind of be this like all knowing figure protecting us now from the uh, longstanding dangers of artificial intelligence intelligence. Yeah. He's kind of pulling a note from minority report in this one. It, it's almost kind of like he was sitting down with the writers and was like, all right, look guys, I've got this figured out. We did a movie back in the early two thousands. You might've watched it. I don't know, but it was called minority report. Let's just do that. And it's been 20 years. Who, who remembers that movie? I, I do like to think that Cruz is like he fascinates me in the sense that he is your typical Hollywood celebrity who is very much distanced from the rest of like the, the common working person. But also he's not like he really understands, I think, the the really pulsing heartbeat of what people want to see at the movies. We uh, we we saw a promotion right where he's literally sitting down eating some popcorn. It's the most relatable thing I, I think I've seen a Hollywood celebrity do in 2023. Mm. <laughs> but it's from Top Cruise, so I'm obviously conflicted <laughs> on that. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the fascinating thing about uh, Tom Cruise. That, like, I feel like there's sort of like man who fell to earth aspect to him where he kind of feels like an alien that like had some sort of mission but got distracted because of movies. <laughs> this is the movies. Isn't that the plot of one of the characters in Eternals? <laughs> Maybe actually, yeah, it is the uh, oh, with yeah, the yeah, yeah. Mel and Johnny plot, yeah, but yeah, I mean, there, there is something about him that I don't know, like, is he one of, is he gonna be a guy mainly because of his like Scientology background? I don't know, is he gonna be a guy who, like, when he passes away or like decades later, uh, I don't if a bunch of like nasty or like wild things are gonna come out about him? Maybe I have no idea. But I mean, like in the present, at least as a movie star and entertainer, I feel like there is really no one else like him. There is like a magnet magnetism to him. It's not like he's like an amazing actor, but there is something about him that is just inherently very compelling. 
and something that he just kind of has that pull. And I feel like now, like with Top Gun Maverick and um, with this new movie, there is a, you know, kind of budding uh, humility to him that I feel like hasn't really been seen in the previous like films he's produced. Well, I think to sum up what you're saying is like he's aging well. He's 61 and he's not trying to, he he is acting like a younger version of himself, but he is finding ways to like slightly and subtly kind of age into different roles, even if they are still hearkening back to a youthful persona. Yeah. I think he's just really skilled at that. I mean, I think I probably even started with something like Edge of Tomorrow. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there is something about him now. It's, you know, it's continuing to be fascinating where he just seems like, yeah, he is more cognitive of the fact that he's now like a 60, 61 year old man. Uh, he's probably in his late fifties when he filmed this, but like, even still like, you know, like acknowledging, you know, the aging, the fact that he is, you know, he can't be jumping off of cliffs or flying off of trains forever. Uh, but yeah, but he's also like still Tom Cruise and he's, I, I don't know, uh, if he's going to like transition into like maybe elder statesman supporting roles and like Oscar, nominated films after this or like what's the game plan but yeah it it, again i feel like this kind of represents the next fascinating chapter in his uh ever withstanding film career he can do whatever he wants but i just want another tropic thunder type performance that's the only thing if i just want that and then yeah make your movies dude uh you can do whatever make another top gun i don't care uh but okay so mission impossible dead reckoning part one this is, as I already mentioned, it's the seventh film in the franchise. It's the first of a two-parter. They are claiming that this these aren't going to be the last two Mission Impossible movies. We'll see about that. I mean, I don't know. It, anything can happen. These are big-budget movies. These are movies that I think are kind of a dying breed, honestly. I don't know if you saw the reported budget for part one, but it's $291 million, one of the biggest budgets of the year. And I, I do think that it'll make a lot of money but it also is coming out in the second week of july and it's also coming out on the heels sandwich in between a massively like overloaded june summer season uh with lots of big movies coming out of june and then also we have barbie and oppenheimer about to take hold of next week's box office so i am a little bit skeptical i do wonder honestly you know why they decided to release this when they did I know that they probably were working off of a specific timeline, but especially after Top Gun Maverick hit in Memorial Day weekend last year and, I mean, just completely dominated the summer. This movie could have done that again, theoretically, because I think that these this movie and Top Gun Maverick have very similar types of audiences. The difference being, and we don't talk about this too much, right, is that the Mission Impossible movies have never been massive earners. I think Fallout definitely started to turn the tide on that in a similar way as like Top Gun Maverick was like kind of a cementing of like Tom Cruise's like box office appeal and sort of a post pandemic lockdown kind of environment. Uh, Fallout, by contrast, did make, I think, more money than any of the other movies, $791 million. So I, I see that as sort of like them kind of making an interesting gamble with Dead Reckoning, being like, all right, so we can push that even further. It's too early for you or I to say how it's going to do. We're recording this really before the movie has rolled out uh, in a meaningful way. It's only made about like two and a half million so far at the box office, but through preview screenings. So we're, we're going to find out, and then you and I will probably be able to, we'll be able to catch up on how this movie is doing in the box office scheme of things. I expect it'll do fine. I, I just, I do question the the timing and the release schedule of this and and how many other movies are going to be competing with it. Uh, Although that said, I mean, you know, we just talked about Joyride and Sidious made, you know, it had a pretty modest opening weekend. It's not like people don't have, like, I guess it it is a a newer movie that is pretty big. And uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny ended up not, you know, really taking off right in terms of box office. So, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this is the one that's going to, to break through. Uh, as for the story, uh, yes, Tom Cruise is in it. You guessed right. Uh, we also have Bing Rames coming in, uh, coming back for us. He's in all of these. He's got to be yeah. uh, required. Luther. Yeah, Luther, obviously fan favorite character. Uh, him and Simon Pegg. I, I love that Simon Pegg has been uh, along for the ride of these for a long time now. Um, truly one of my, my favorite duos in any kind of spy 
thriller or uh, Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg. Benji. Benji, that's right. Did you hear um, that apparently this that role almost went to Ricky Gervais? Mm-hmm. It's like a bizarro timeline, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's that's another thing. If we're going to, if I can add one more note to the Tom Cruise conversation, he's good at surrounding yeah. himself with people who, I don't know, I think there's like a balance between a guy like Simon Pegg, a guy like Ving Rhames, Christopher McQuarrie, like people who are like, I don't know, they're not yes men necessarily. You could maybe make that case for McQuarrie, but you just get the sense that he surrounds himself with people that like he respects and who kind of respect him and are able to sort of like, I don't know, have like a, a working relationship with him as a creative talent that isn't extremely topsided or lopsided or top heavy, however you want to say it. Um, that's the vibe I get. Yeah, I mean, with Macquarie, uh, maybe we'll get into this a little bit more, but like there is something about him where he is uh, definitely very talented, not only as a writer, but as a, a filmmaker and, and as an action filmmaker. And I think he works really well with Tom Cruise. They have a very kind of simpatico relationship. But there is also something where I feel like I do want Tom Cruise to kind of go back to like when he was like working with like auteurs, not only the Mission Possible ones like John Woo and uh, sure. Brian Palma and stuff. But get out of his comfort zone a little bit. But yeah, I mean, you know, he used to work with like Stanley Kubrick and Paul Thomas Anderson and, you know, uh, Michael Mann, like all these like, you know, well-known directors. And I feel like that is something that has kind of been lost in the recent years. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, that's going to come back. I feel like he's just kind of been working with like guys he can trust, like, uh, um, Joseph, uh, what's the name of the guy that did Top Gun and Oblivion? Um, Joseph, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but... Kaczynski? Kaczynski, yes, yeah. And then, like, um, uh, the... Uh, man, I'm not, I'm not good with names today. The Edge of Tomorrow uh, director as well. Oh, Doug Lyman. Doug Lyman, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it seems like he he is kind of in like a comfort zone. Like he like trusts certain people, and that's fine. Like I think yeah, I mean, both those movies you just mentioned, Macquarie was a writer, so right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's efficient. And like he, I think he's been very good as producer, being like producing slick, you know, well oiled machines as films. But I, I do wish uh, wish uh, that you know, as he you know, kind of gets out of the action franchise, that he kind of goes you know into something a little bit more. Yeah, audacious but yeah i mean i feel like last time he even like worked with a different type of director it was alex kurtzman in the hmm. mummy so yeah maybe that's why but he's again like, christopher mcquarrie wrote the mummy sure yeah yeah i mean honestly mcquarrie and cruise for people who don't know mcquarrie uh, wrote the usual suspects uh so like when you say he's a talented writer like we can't undersell that but i mean he's been working with cruise uh going all the way back to like valkyrie right so they have been like you know kind of a a bit of a duo, like uh, definitely in the same sphere for a long, long time. And yeah, yeah. the producing stuff is, is more recent. I think like uh, first time, I mean, he, pr I think uh, McCoy produced Valkyrie, but didn't produce a lot of the movies we just mentioned, including some mission impossible movies. But I mean, he's had his hands in, you know, even some of the stuff like uh, American made, I think we talked about on the show. And uh, I think, uh, you know, he's been producing these mission impossible movies since fallout. So look, I think the point is, McCory is a talented guy. I think that he is an agreeable guy. I think he sure. kind of just knows how to like work with Cruz, give Cruz what he wants, but also like make a good film out of it. And that is like an understated talent. I think in Hollywood, you have to understand how to say yes and no to people, but also without poisoning those like relationships. So that that's only that's my main point. But anyway, Dead Reckoning, the plot of this movie, uh, it, it opens with a with a submarine. Uh, set piece that is very i i, I don't know how it's going to hit for people that are a few more weeks removed from the whole like titan slash titanic sub thing but when i watched this movie it was a while ago and it was like literally that week so oh, man. it was kind of bizarre because i i didn't know that that scene was going to happen and i was like wait what what? <laughs> what how did they how did they plan this um very different scene of course but uh, it's just it's just funny that it's like the first like submarine incident in like a century <laughs> and like it happened you know this mission impossible movie just happened to have that as its opening is it's cold open so i thought that was kind of you know literal cold open because it's in yeah yeah and you also uh, uh i don't know fitting or poor choice words when you said how it's gonna hit with people <laughs>
I mean, it would have been worse if I had said like if it had imploded, you know? Right. But um, no, nevertheless, uh, yeah, I mean, it's obviously going for like a Hunter Red October vibe. Mm-hmm. It's like a fun opening. But yeah, I mean, I, that is... it feels a little bit more at home with like the Brian De Palma movie, honestly. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole movie does. I mean, that's why I think the, the writing does. And then what the set the pieces, you would say I the think... direction, I would say the the kind of plot and story. But I mean, the direction, I think, are still pretty like prototypical Macquarie. No, no. I mean, I, I, I mean, well, sure. I mean, I think it's on their mind, but like, obviously, bringing Kittredge back. Uh, there's like a ton of Dutch angles in this one. Yes. Uh, there is this kind of sense of like constantly being watched and surveyed, and like not really knowing who is after you and stuff. That's very evocative of De Palma and that first film. Uh, also, just like like the knife. Uh, that's what I mean. The story, but I mean, aside from the Dutch angles, I don't think the direction is necessarily like right out of i mean i know there is like a whole there is a whole like train sequence that you can kind of yeah. like extrapolate and i, I totally get that but yeah and, and I, I do i was going to mention uh kittredge does come back in this henry yeah. zerny's character we haven't seen him since the 1996 film so kind of wild to see him come back in this i'll admit there were a lot of things in this movie where i was genuinely like i just did not remember what happened in fallout and i want to give them i want to give De- dead reckoning this fallout is still my favorite of these movies because I just think it's a set piece spectacle machine that is like unrivaled to most blockbusters. Mm-hmm. And while I think this movie, it like certainly it's like, it's almost like fallout is like the peak of that mountain. And this movie is just a little bit below that. It, I think that it's a, a step down in some ways, but it's still that high. Like we're still pretty high up, but I do think the story in this, the whole MacGuffin, a lot of the stuff we already talked about with like the AI sort of thing and what they're hunting for. And like you mentioned that the paranoia that's kind of wrapped in this film I find it more memorable and I do and I'll put this to the test obviously when we watch the next one but it has been 5 years since Fallout I genuinely for, forgot that Vanessa Kirby was in these movies like I really did and I, that's not to say anything against Vanessa Kirby I think I'm just more aware of Kirby as an actress too these days than I was in 18 I think like I just knew her from The Crown back then but she's made a lot of great stuff in the last 5 years I didn't forget about her I I the only thing I had to remember was that like she's related to Max, Vanessa Redgrave's character from the first one. Right. I had I just did not remember that whatsoever. And I and I forgot like where we were at with Rebecca Ferguson. I was like, are she and Ethan like doing anything? Like is it is it a relationship? It's the most like platonic paramour coupling in I think like any spy movie I think I've ever seen. Um I mean, yeah, I get what you're saying. The thing that I found kind of confusing is that like they brought back Michelle Monaghan for the last one for Fallout, and I feel like it's just weird that like not only is she just like not mentioned or like alluded to at all in this movie. I didn't find that weird. I found that expected. I think that they were like we need to tie a bow on that in the last movie and then leave room for the rest. And this movie kind of just harks. It does kind of hark upon it in the sense that like Ethan Hunt's like track record with you know female friends is pretty bad. Uh. Well, certainly with uh, beautiful brunettes, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I just it was a little confusing to me because there is like like you're kind of suggesting like like a tinge of like romanticism with uh, Rebecca Ferguson, even with uh, Haley Atwell um, in this. And I just wasn't 100 percent sure. Like, are we supposed to find this like romantic or is this kind of just like you said, more platonic? Is Michelle Monaghan still in the picture? Like, is he like, because there's like the suggestion in Fallout that he's like thinking about settling down and like kind of going back to his, uh, you know, his roots, like trying to establish a home life. And then like when the beginning of this movie, there's like this sense of like this long lingering romantic tragedy with, of course, another beautiful brunette uh, uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, kind of uh, informs the, the new villain of the film um yeah i don't know i just i i kind of want to just like even just something that kind of just acknowledged that i felt it was just a little odd to leave it absent but it's not like you know uh a huge fault or anything just something that kind of nod at me throughout the film honestly I, I can't say it really struck me whatsoever i the things that struck me about this movie on the positive end i think the addition of Haley atwell great i think that she's yeah terrific to watch in this i think that she uh she's a bit of a, like a cat woman type the archetype kind of character she has her own twist to it but uh she's just way more exciting to watch it reminds me of when ferguson's character was introduced in rogue nation and i think that they just haven't 
been able to like fully pay off that character from rogue nation since then and so by the time we get to here i think ferguson's been kind of put to the to the sidelines like she's in the movie but like she's definitely not a strong presence like she's not uh she doesn't factor into the energy of the plot the way that atwell does and you can see that atwell's kind of being positioned as you know end game in terms of like the person that uh but in two roles like a passing of the torch and a sort of like the person who can make ethan hunt feel feelings i guess i don't know but um on the bad end of that i think Isai morales and i've seen some people say that they love this this guy as the villain here um you know he's, he's been in great stuff i don't get me wrong I, I bad boys and all that but i found him to be like profoundly boring in this I, as a villain i i was like wow like this really i think we've we've gotten used to pretty like you know n- not philip seymour hoffman type villains i mean no one there's not been a villain since mission impossible 3 that has really stood out to me that much rogue uh, nation uh, i think is okay in that regard no i mean I, I would say i mean i don't know if you consider him like a true villain but i, I do really like henry cavill uh in fallout and especially in like the third act where he like serves like the sort of main I don't. I I like Cavill in general in that movie, but as a villain, uh, yeah, I, I can't. Maybe maybe when I rewatch Fallout, I'll be there with you. But also, Eastside Morales. I mean, I'm happy to see a, a Puerto Rican actor, you know, do a good work. So I, sure, I do yeah. want to put it out there that I'm I'm on his side. But uh, I just I don't know. I, f- I found his performance in this movie to be just really like one note and uninteresting, and it's not his fault. I think it's just sort of like I don't know. He he just kind of comes across to me like he's going to be more important in the next movie. Just wait. You know what I mean? And, and, and in this, he's just kind of like gliding along until things happen. Uh, kind of similar deal with like Plum, uh, Palm Clementif, who I said in my review is like really just kind of doing what she did in Thunder Force. Remember Thunder Force? No. She played this like silent assassin with like blonde hair in Thunder Force, right? And, and, <laughs> and she's just kind of doing the same thing again in this one. What? I saw Thunder Force. Gun to my head. I could not have told you that he was in that film. I don't blame you. I'm I'm not gonna uh I could literally like I just Googled like her still from the movie and like legitimately I can show this to you and you'll be like, oh my god. <laughs> it she's like literally it's like the same performance. But anyway, okay. No, I mean I I definitely gotta disagree with Eastside Morales and Palm. Uh what is it? I I, I wanna know what it is that people like about this character slash performance because I, I you're not alone other people have been like oh it's great sure yeah um well for one i mean uh, as a kind of olive branch i will say it does hit one of my kind of villainy pet peeves at least with franchises where i don't like really when movies do like the like oh we're gonna introduce a character in the 11th hour but like he's been this important character this whole time Mm -hmm. uh we just haven't seen him at all because we never even talked about him or alluded to him or referenced him he just now he's super important he's like the be-all end-all i don't really like when franchises do that in general and that's kind of a pet peeve for mine with this film but no i mean i I really like that uh with past mission impossible villains i mean at least the ones that stand out like we were mentioning like john void and philip seymour hoffman especially like i i like that there is a kind of coldness to it, but there's also like a, a thrill to it. Like there's this kind of like sense of like being very like um, driven by it, but also kind of relishing it. And I think this character kind of captures that as well, but there is a resolve to it in the sense that uh, I, I do like that he is just like solely unrelenting to like let Ethan like <laughs> live a peaceful and, and, uh, meaningful life yeah i mean it, it does very much harken back to philip seymour hoffman it is not as good as that performance or that character i think but i don't know it just it was just nice to see a villain that actually stood out to me like you mentioned like i feel like that's been a big uh failure of the more recent mission Impossible movies especially ghost protocol i feel like not having a memorable villain in that movie and also i mean rogue nation like i think that that's what kind of prevents those movies from Kind of Rogue Nation had a good idea for its villain, but it just didn't have a good execution. I think because of, I don't, I just don't think the actor was able to really like mm. stick out the way that Hoffman. Like I think you could have had like Hoffman playing that role in a Bizarro world, and he would have made that 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 movie would be like, wow, this has the best villain. I just think it was, I just think the actor. I don't remember the actor. That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm guessing like in a you know perfect timeline. I, I don't remember if Philip Seymour Hoffman's character died at the end of. Um... Pretty sure he did, but. 
Spoilers okay. for Mission Impossible 3, which came out in 2006 or right. whatever. <laughs> I, okay, look. <laughs> uh, not that there are people who aren't going to listen to this who haven't watched the Mission Impossible movies, but I, I'm going to assume anyone that's listening to this has at least seen the last six Mission Impossible movies. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but hey, look, since you mentioned John Voight, I, I was going to bring this up, but uh, Tom Cruise is now older than older. John Voight was when they made Mission Impossible. Right, because he was, yeah, he was fifty-eight. John Boyd in nineteen ninety-six. Yeah, which uh, it, it's just one of those things, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that rewatching, uh, not that exactly, but a similar thing when I was rewatching Kingdom of Crystal Skull leading up to Dial of Destiny, and yeah, I think he was like sixty-five when that came out when he was making it, and people are like, "Can you even imagine uh, an Indiana Jones that's like in his sixties?" And now we have like an Ethan Hunt that's in his fifties, and I feel like it's not even like mentioned or discussed uh really outside of this little, like factoid uh that you just mentioned but um yeah i don't know i mean i think that's why i'm under the assumption that like at least the tom cruise era of the mission possible franchise has to end with dead reckoning um i'm, I'm they, they obviously as you mentioned there is a um passing of the torch i think i mean i think it's a lot better handled uh with Haley atwell's character in this film than it is with jeremy renner uh with uh ghost protocol though i i feel like there there's something pretty genuine here in a way that i feel like it's not his fault but i think jeremy renner's like passing the torch was more of like a paramount decision it kind of felt like we're only really going to do this if you can kind of usher in a uh you know someone that could kind of take over the franchise uh because Tom Cruise at that point wasn't a like absolute certainty as far as his like renewed star power or whatnot. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think as you were saying that the uh, dynamic there and, and the chemistry between those two really stands out. And I think that's definitely one of the best aspects of this film. Um, but going back to what you were saying before, I mean, I, I really thought uh, Palm Clementine was, you know, like just for what she needed to be, I thought she was a uh, captivating presence. I thought, her chasing uh, throughout the like kind of middle section of this film was so much fun. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what you uh, took issue with with her, per se. I think but... she's a, just a poorly written character that is like it's just a carbon copy of a performance she's done before. And I don't think it's her fault. I just think that she's written to be boring, honestly. Like, I don't know. She's not that compelling to me. But uh, I mean, yeah, she, she's in a chase scene and she like looks angry when she's driving a car. Like, OK. Yeah, you're underselling it. Um, I'm sorry. This movie <laughs> okay. Well to, uh, she has a teardrop her. tattoo at one point. It's really cool. Well, I'm sorry. I was this on the edge of my up. seat. <laughs> I'm sorry this movie didn't live up the Thunder Force for you, but uh, uh. <laughs> that's a problem. It's too similar. No, I think um, it it does kind of hark upon though, like uh, how like there there are some like fist fight scenes in this that I don't think really work because of Cruz's age and she's part of like one of them and it feels really stiff and and weirdly constructed because it's like well we got to have a sort of fisticuffs kind of thing happening here and it just doesn't I don't know it just doesn't look right I like the staging of it because they're in this like really narrow sort of like alleyway and you're like whoa okay like what's going to happen like he can't get out he can't dodge like this is going to be a real brawl and then I don't know it just doesn't quite work for me at all like it, it just it, i don't know it, it was very like the way that they had to pull it off i think because like he can only do so much i, I don't know it, it was a bit of a letdown for me um i don't know if that was the staging or even cruise per se i i do think one of the faults and I, I like that scene fine it's not like my favorite in the movie or anything but I, I i thought it was sterling uh but i do think what you're talking about does kind of harken to i think one of the bigger issues with the movie which is probably the cinematography um i i know like with the last few uh mission impossible movies like we had robert elswit for rogue nation and then i think we had like tom Har or not tom hardy uh rob hardy <laughs> uh who was like alex garland's uh go-to dp um for uh fallout and this one i don't know the guy's name off the top of my head i apologize it's but a fraser fraser taggart Okay, I know this is like his first like major movie as a DP. I, I think he's done like a lot of work in other films and like various capacities. He hasn't worked on a ton of films. Uh, he worked on John Wick Chapter Two. Okay, um, he was one of the uh, which he, one of the cinematographers with Dan Lawson. I was gonna say. I mean, I, I imagine. <laughs> I, I did wonder when that party scene happened. 
um, you know, I, I think in their head, they're kind of like, oh, this will be like kind of a nice callback to like Eyes Wide Shut or something. But in my head, I'm just kind of like, is this like happening around the same place that uh, that big party scene happened mm-hmm. in uh, John Wick Chapter 2? I had the exact same thought. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, it's unmistakable, isn't it? Uh, it very much is like, I, I don't think enough has been said about how these Mission Impossible movies do kind of like bounce off of John Wick in some interesting ways because John Wick comes out in 2014, a couple years after Ghost Protocol. Rogue Nation comes out not long after and the kind of both movies have been kind of going down this same highway in the last 10 years of like trying to like one up like stunt filmmaking in in ways that were a little bit less uh, reliably seen right before the first John Wick movie, I'd say. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I maintain that John Wick uh, has been good for the action genre. Mm-hmm. It's forced people to kind of step up their game and and produce better, more memorable action scenes. Um, you know, I mean, not every movie that's you know knockoff of John Wick is going to be uh, you know the best, but it's certainly Atomic better. I, I think that's not. I think that's fine. Uh, I think there are certainly other examples you could have pulled there, notably worse, but. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I do think uh, uh, compared to something like Taken and the influence that movie had, I, I think it's certainly been more yeah. beneficial to the genre. But anyway, uh, I was going to say with the cinematography, uh, even though I do really appreciate the effort here to kind of uh, harken back to the first movie, to the Tuama's, uh stylistic way of filmmaking, I, I just feel like the cinematography here just isn't quite as sharp uh, as the previous, more recent installments. Um, I think it also kind of has to do with this being the first one shot digitally, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm not against digital in general, but I think there is just a general kind of coldness to the frame in this one that, uh, I, I, I don't know if it's intentional or not. My charitable read of it is that it's deliberate for like all the AI and the sense of like using technology to kind of, you, uh, have, uh, you know, like this kind of colder, you know, more menacing demeanor. Um, but I think it was probably more of a budgetary thing. Uh, ultimately, I'm curious because you watch this in Dolby. I, I watched this in a standard. I, I don't know how different the two formats must have been. I don't know. I just, I mean, compared to at least like the last three Mission Impossible movies, I just feel like the visuals of this aren't quite as strong. But don't say it's like an ugly movie or anything. I'm just saying, I I was thinking the same thing, but I wasn't sure because Fallout, I remember seeing that Dolby IMAX. So I wasn't sure if, you know, I was watching Dead Reckoning Part 1 in a less optimal format, but it was kind of painting my impression. No, I mean, I, I, I even like from the first scene, I was kind of like, something's a little off here this time around visually. And I, I had remembered hearing that this was like the first one shot digitally. Well, were you thinking that it was maybe a combination of that and COVID? Because they had to shut down like during COVID, right? Or no, they they were filming during lockdown. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think it, I'm. I don't know. I, I really don't know. There, there was a, so we should say there was a whole thing where like Cruz got in a little bit of hot water because there's like an audio recording where he's like shouting at people for not following um, COVID protocols. And yeah. So there, there was a yeah. I think um, but that uh, people refer to him kind of like he was acting like his Tropic Thunder character. <laughs> That was a fun time. Yeah, I mean, I did remember reading an article about like just how hectic this production was. I, uh, at least for this film, I don't know if they, like you said, I, I think they shot both these together, but I'm not 100 percent sure. They so they originally were going to. I, I looked this up since we brought it up. Uh, they didn't. Uh, so okay. they filmed the first one and then they filmed the second one something like a year or so later ish, um, more than like 2022. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I even remember hearing that like Macquarie was in the hospital at one point with COVID or something. And I think a lot of people actually got, uh, COVID from this production cause it was like fairly early on, uh, like you said, in lockdown and throughout yeah. lockdown. It was before vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, uh, that was their mission and they chose to accept it and we have wow. the film. There you go. Uh, we haven't really said what we think of the movie, I guess, right. Or we haven't really been more general right we've kind of just poked at like little things here and there i I hope i haven't sounded like i'm too negative on this one i I think i I mean i meant what i said when i said that it's like on the spectacle side it's it's just a notch below fallout which is still you know such a great movie that i'm happy with what we got here i i think my thing with this is i keep comparing it to fast 10 
And this is one of like several part one movies we've gotten this summer, Fast 10 being one of the big ones. And of course, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse being another thing. Across the Spider-Verse was a good part one in the sense where I felt like at the end of that movie, it, it did feel like we need, there's more, you know, it does feel like an interruption, but I think the preceding movie is so good and it has such a good lead up to that ending that I think that it pays off or it pulls it off in a way that has me hyped for the next one, not necessarily, you know, disappointed that the movie's over. Fast 10 is more interesting because that's a movie where it ends and it, and it feels a little bit more of like the Avengers Infinity War kind of part one where you can kind of look at it and be like, it kind of just told a story here where it, it ends and the villain wins. And then the second movie is going to be, you know, the Empire Strikes Back, the good guys strike back, whatever. I think the reason I keep comparing this part one to Fast 10 is that I think Fast 10 is better at two things here. Now, Fast 10 doesn't have nearly, like, it's not a better movie. Like, let's, I'll just be super clear about that. This movie is much more thrilling and, and entertaining and, and better at what it's trying to do. It has a better car chase scene than any car chase scene in Fast 10. But I do think Fast 10 has a way more fun villain, more memorable villain than Jason Momoa. And I do think that the note Fast 10 ends on is a bit more of a gut punch. I think this movie ends with a really cool set piece, but then it just kind of limps away. Like, I just feel like this movie was missing something from its ending. I just didn't feel like, oh man, I can't wait for part two. I felt a little bit more like, I, I guess there'll be a part two because we do have to tie up some loose ends here, I guess. It, it just, I don't know. It, it just didn't feel as elegant to me. Yeah, I gotta disagree with you again. Uh, yeah, I, I thought with Fast X, the ending, uh, it just kind of felt like an eruption. Like, it was just kind of like, that's it for now. Uh, we'll catch up with you later at some point. Uh, it didn't really feel like a super, like, I, I know it was going for, like, a literal cliffhanger there in the same way this movie is, uh, without giving too much away about the third act. But, yeah, I, just, it, 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 I felt like that movie just kind of annoyed me as far as how it ended. I get that it was going for the Infinity War type of uh conclusion but it didn't feel as earned to me um with spider-verse i i think that's a better film overall and i like the last note ends on but i think that movie kind of suffers from like i kept feeling like okay and here's the ending yeah oh, yeah, nope. yeah it just kept ending over and over again and nope we're still going yeah, yeah. uh here is the no uh, and then yeah but um this one i feel like it's good about feeling resolute like there is a conclusion to it, but there is more to come. And I think it's like, it made me want to keep watching more. It was like, okay, I'm excited. Uh, even though I think Spider-Verse is obviously the best of these three films that we're mentioning. Uh, I, I do feel like, you know, like this is the best about being like a part one and feeling like a thrilling, uh, you know, like first chapter and standing out on its own merits. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't really take issues that uh, the ones that you have, at least. But uh, I do think a part of that just comes down to how much I find the third act, third act of this film to be so much fun. And the train set piece, while obviously evocative of the uh, the first movie and a lot of kind of obvious and winking waves, um, also kind of built up to this big, uh, you know, like set piece uh, chase that is just like so inventive and so fun. Uh, and it's like one of my favorite, like kind of set pieces from any of these movies, I think. So I don't know. I think that that definitely saves it for me. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We just disagree. I mean, what else is new, right? <laughs> I can't say that I uh, am terribly surprised that we disagree on, uh, a Tom Cruise movie, I guess. Um, but I mean, with that said, I mean, if, if, if we, if we want to be a little bit more even keel. I, I do think, and this is more, I think, to say with the uh, the franchise altogether. I, I would say it's probably more middle of the pack. If like you were talking about rankings earlier, like I don't think this reaches quite the same heights as Fallout. I don't think it's as good as uh, Rogue Nation or Ghost Protocol. Uh, and I, I still would probably put the first one above uh, this one, but I, I do think you know being the middle pack of this franchise is like not a demotion it's just like it's just a, a testament to how good the recent mission possible movies have been of late uh and how much tom cruise like just really goes buck wild with these movies uh and really just kind of puts his all into them 
Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think by like this summer standards, it's definitely one of the highlights. And I, I think this movie gave me the thrills that I wanted from uh, Dial of Destiny. I, I feel like it's like pretty night and day as far as like how the action scenes are choreographed, how thrilling they are, how much fun is in it, and just how funny they can be as well. Um, compared to, I think, what was kind of sluggish and, uh, you know, overlong about the action scenes in uh, Dial of Destiny. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I get your complaints. I get some of them, at least. I don't get other ones. But, I don't know. I still have had a really good time. And, uh, you know, whatever issues I have, it's still just a, just a good popcorn flick. <laughs> I had a good time, too. I wrote a positive review. I think that I, I stand by what I've said before. I said it when we talked about Mission Impossible Fallout. Every single one of these movies is the best of these movies at at least one thing. And I think that we've already talked about some of those things here, you know, mission possible three best villain. I think uh, fallout best set pieces. I think rogue nation, probably the best uh, construction of a villain. Uh, you know, it, it's just, each one has something to it. Even, even mission impossible Two, I think in all of its John Woo weirdness has something to it. That's kind of almost like charming and how weird it is. I think with this movie, I, I'm still struggling on pinpointing exactly what it's the best at, but I do think it's probably in the Haley Atwell character because I think that she just sort of represents that feeling that these movies still have new territory to uncover, but they can still keep innovating and still keep finding new things to surprise us with. And if I'm if I'm ever harsh with these movies, it's only because they do set such a high standard and I'm thrilled that they set a high standard that we can't ask so much from Mission Impossible movies. I sometimes have to remind myself how that was never a guarantee, right? Growing up with these movies the way we both did, it's not like we knew that this was like a full-on franchise really until I think Rogue Nation and, and all of that because the second Mission Impossible movie I watched a ton, right? I, I That was like a movie that I remember watching the second one and it came out when I was around 10 years old and I was just obsessed with it because i was coming off of the high of being obsessed with james bond movies for the first time you know golden eye tomorrow never dies the world is not enough these movies were coming out pierce brosnan was my james bond right and then here comes tom cruise like in this like really like you know kick butt sort of action franchise with like flames on the poster it was super cool it's a 10 year old john and i just never remember i, I don't remember actually going through like my middle school and high school years expecting more mission impossible movies the way that i expected james bond movies but they just continue to come back and they continue to be like oh man here's mission impossible 3 here's this like really thrilling sort of interrogate interrogation sequence here's ghost protocol with this like incredibly good trailer you know that uh, i i just i didn't know there was going to be another mission impossible movie i thought they were done and then sure enough they come back with rogue nation and it's like whoa like the set pieces are on a totally different level now so I, I certainly am enthusiastic about these movies all all day, every day. I, if anything, I, I hope that they end it with part two because they would. I think that they have the chance to end it on like a good note, on a, in a way that like really wraps up this franchise in its current form and leaves it alone for a while. I think that that was the thing that this franchise has benefited the most has been when it takes those pauses. And to your point, I think that if they do bring it back. I, yeah, I mean, I'd love to see another director. I'd love to see somebody like a, another kind of Brad Bird, J.J. Abrams, like somebody come back to do this that hasn't done it before because Mission Impossible has a lot of uh, potential to it. There's a lot of characters in this in this like world they've created and they can keep coming back and doing their thing. My only stipulation is like, yeah, you got to have Bing Rames in it. But other than that, I mean, do what you want to do. So I, I have a few uh, letterbox reviews to read out. So I feel like we said our piece. I have a, a negative one, a kind of middle one, and a very positive one. Which one do you want me to start with? Uh, let's go with the middle. Somebody that be uh, a peaceful uh, mitigator between us. And, and look, middle middle is, in this case, a three and a half. Uh, so, because the reviews, most of the reviews I've, I found were extremely like positive. So, so this is the middling one. Uh, this is from Marmar. I fear this franchise has peaked with Fallout. Sadly, not even Tom Cruise jumping off a cliff from a motorcycle was able to win me over. Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, and Fallout are the best ones because they're easy to follow. 
directed meticulously and focused heavily on perfecting the action stunt choreography. This is the other way around, too plot-heavy, too long for its own good, and none of the action set pieces stood out at all. Disappointment does not feel great in a place like this. <laughs> I, I agree with some of this, but I, the thing I disagree with is I don't think it's too plot-heavy. If anything, the plot kind of saves this movie for me. It's what keeps me more interested in it. Uh, do you agree, disagree? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like with Fallout and with this one, like there's a sense that I get that like they're kind of not like winging it, but like they're kind of flying by the seat of their pants. Like I remember hearing that like the script for Fallout when they were filming it was kind of like in shambles and just like constantly changing. And I I kind of get the sense like with lockdown and and all the issues that uh, befell this movie that it had kind of a similar thing, but I, I didn't really take issue with the story of it. I, I, I think it served the film as much as it needed to. Um, I, 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 I feel like the story is usually kind of a means to an end with this film. It's like kind of connecting the set pieces, kind of keeping us along, getting the characters together or, you know, kind of building tension or whatever. But um, as far as, the action set pieces go to their comment. Um, I do think, as we were kind of alluding to, one of the bigger issues with the movie is that there is a kind of sameness to it. As far as Mission Impossible movies go, that like I feel like this one might get kind of muddled, uh, you know, in the series. Like I, I feel like each one has like very distinctive visuals and set pieces that like whether I love the movie or not, like I'm like, oh, you know, like Tom Cruise like riding that motorcycle. That's Mission Impossible two or whatever, you know, like stuff like that, or like Tom Cruise hanging off the tallest building, that's Ghost Protocol or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, this one, I think, has its sort of like Uncharted 2 sort of thing with the train falling off. I think sure. that's that's yeah, the that, and that's the one that like sticks out yeah, to me the most. Of course, yeah. And that's going to be probably the set piece I think back on the most when I think of this movie, for sure. And by the way, I'm referring to Uncharted 2, the video game. <laughs> Which is considered uh, the best of the game, the best of the series, probably is anyway. Yeah, if you say so. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I get where they're coming from. I don't think this is as good as Fallout, but uh, yeah, I can understand that complaint. Let's do the negative review next. This is from Griffin Schiller, uh, fun mutual of ours, so aware of his work. But uh, Griffin said, "Bit unsure leaving Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One, but it's the closest we've gotten to late Connery and more Bond in a while." Enjoyed the weirdness, heightened spycraft, thrilling action, but for as thrilling as the action is, some of the set pieces aren't as impressive as you would think. Fiat chase is bizarrely paced and executed. The hand-to-hand combat flat, that part I do agree with. Some very noticeable green screen work in the climax that takes away from an incredible train sequence. The central dilemma of AI is also horribly fumbled and completely misunderstands the battle we face. Plus, there's an unforgivable decision slash character assassination that positively irked me. I also have to say the handling of the female characters was so deeply strange and off-putting. It's hard to discuss without getting into spoilers, but let's just say there are echoes to Cruz's own personal romantic relationships that come across as him trying to justify all the questionable S-H-I-T he did in them. I'm also just left with a ton of questions and muddled character motivations, which is fine. Some of these problems may be resolved in part two, but more than most of the part ones released as of late across the Spider-Verse, Dune, Dead Reckoning really suffers from feeling like an incomplete story right up there with Fast 10. Part one simply does not function effectively as a story. And even if it is half of a two larger, a movie still needs to stand on its own. There's a difference between a sequel with a cliffhanger and an incomplete story, and I don't think being a part one should excuse a movie from not functioning as a movie on its own. Probably my least favorite Mission Impossible, sadly. I agree with a lot of it, a lot of what Griffin is saying here, honestly. I, I think the stuff with the female characters, we, we touched on it, but yeah. I mean, I it, it really, it, like, off-putting is, is the word for it, and I do, I do agree that, like, the AI stuff, I like that it's in the movie. I'm kind of giving the movie the benefit of the doubt for the next one. I do think that like the whole construct of like AI is this like deeply dangerous, horrible, like, you know, I'm glad that they replaced the whole like nuclear bomb stuff with AI because it's a more interesting dilemma for the characters. And I like that it's setting up this idea of how, I mean, in the real world, AI is this sort of like kind of, it's this thing that like we don't fully understand, but like everyone just kind of wants to control it instead of like solve a potential series of problems. You know what I mean? I think the movie does kind of get into that. And so I, I don't totally agree with the whole thing of like, Oh, it doesn't understand 
the the issues with AI. I guess it's it's a sanitized version of it. It is kind of superficial about it to to his credit. Sure, I guess. I don't know. I mean, there is one scene where like without giving anything away, like AI uh sort of infiltrates like a mission. And I love that um two characters to try to solve it just like throw their laptops in the ground. It, mm-hmm. it kind of <laughs> In like NCIS, there's like that one scene. Maybe it's not NCIS. There's some some CBS procedural drama where like they need to like code faster than ever. So like someone's just like typing as fast as they can on a keyboard, and someone's like pacing around behind them, and it's just like let me get in there. And they're just like both typing on the same keyboard, like trying to do as fast as possible. And it just feels like very like old man trying to tackle technology sort of thing. Yeah, that yeah. always very amusing. Um, other than that, I can't say I agree with a lot of what was said there, but um, yeah, the green screen, unfortunately, is kind of noticeable and distracting, especially for a franchise like this that prides itself on being as real and realistic looking as possible. Um, but I, I, I think it's handled fine. Like it, didn't, it, it, it took me out of some moments, but not enough to distract me from the film overall. Uh, I do think, uh, I mean, in this one, I'll have to be careful about how I phrase it, but there is a uh, handling of a certain character that I think was kind of muddy. It's considering that like the beginning, I think kind of fumbles how they're brought back. And then like when like a later scene happens, like I feel like it's kind of um, muted a little bit because it, it kind of like yeah. out earlier that like, I, I kind of could just see through. So I kind of feel like that, that could have, that scene could have been more powerful if they mm-hmm. handle it better. And I think that is uh, one of the weaker elements of the film, but it's, yeah, I, I can't say I agree with the rest of the things that they were saying in their review. We'll finish off with a positive review here. Uh, this is from cinema Joe living up to fallout was always going to be a gargantuan task, which is maybe why I felt like this was the slightest underwhelming. There was no real moment that took my breath away, but is that even a fair standard to measure in the vacuum of 21st century action film? Dead Reckoning is better than a vast majority of its peers. Well acted, incredible action set pieces, excellent new characters. But in the vacuum of the Mission Impossible franchise, it is missing a certain bite. Maybe it's the loads of exposition in the first half, constantly reminding you they need both keys to verify it's the real key. I did find that. I found that charming. Well, <laughs> Surprisingly, I found the most interesting part was the story's new villain. Or less the actual villain, but the film's thesis. It may not be groundbreaking to opine that our over-reliance on technology is dangerous, but in the current state of film, this thesis is operating at a fascinating level. I'm sure there are a lot of fireworks were held back for Dead Reckoning Part 2, a movie I'm certain that will melt our faces off. And uh, ultimately, I mean, a four-star review. There you go. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's the closest of the three you've you shared to my feelings on the film. Yeah, glad we ended on it so we could end on that note. All right, let's play the Mission Impossible Rotten Tomatoes game. We have 273 reviews counted. One of them's mine, so you know... You know I'm in there. You know I'm tinkering. Uh, what do you think the critic score is right now? Oh, I think it's going to be high. Uh, probably in the 90s. I don't think it's going to be like 98 or something like that. I think uh, similar to you, I think some people are probably going to have some reservations that they may not have had with uh, the last couple of Macquarie Mission Impossibles. But nevertheless, I think still very high. Uh, I, I, I find it hard to believe that people are going to walk out of this being like, that was bad. Like, not not worth the experience, uh, even if they might find it over long or have other issues with it. So I'm going to say 94%. You're, you're kind of, uh, it, it's in between your high estimate and your low. It's 96. And I think that it, to what you're saying, it's like even people who have it, their criticisms of it, like I do, and those negative uh, slash middling reviews that we mentioned, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's not enough for people to be like, oh, it's a bad movie. It's just people, some people have lower scores, but you know, Rotten Tomatoes isn't about the, the median, you know what I mean? Uh, I don't even know what the Metacritic score must be. Uh, yeah. But okay, audience score, 1,000 plus verified ratings. What about audiences? What do, you, do you think they're uh, they're in line? Do you think that's a little different? What's up? Uh, I think, yeah, they're probably pretty similar. I'm going to say uh, 97%. It's, uh, it's more similar than that. It's 95, just uh, one lower than the oh. critic score, which is kind of yeah. surprising, I guess. Maybe maybe yeah. some people are like, you know, a lowballing it slightly. Who knows? Yeah, we'll do we'll do a cinema score next. All right. So the folks in Vegas, they have spoken. Um, and what do you think? I mean, I, do you think this one's going to Yeah, I, I should look up what the last one was for Fallout. I actually don't remember. Uh, 
I feel like Fallout was like an A, and I feel like this one's probably going to be like an A minus. You know, like maybe some reservations, but still just having a good time on the big screen, mm-hmm. indulging in sin outside of the casino and all that. So you're going to guess it, uh, A minus? Yep. Um, you were right that Fallout got an A, but uh, mm. this one also got an A. Two oh, A's. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they'll get a triple report card on the third. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I actually see the the Metacritic score here is eighty one, so it's actually kind of high. All right, and then we'll finish with the Letterbox rating. Uh, let's see here, how many people have logged it on Letterbox? That would be sixty six thousand, which is really good considering it's still like in preview screenings. That's more than like Joyride and all that, uh, which not surprising, huh? All right, what do you think the average rating is on Letterbox? Uh, I think it's officially out now. Like it's on preview screenings. I think, yeah, as of today, but I think like a lot of people who have watched it so far, who have logged it, have been from the previous no. screenings, right? No, it came out on Tuesday. I thought it came out Wednesday. Whatever. It's only been a couple Whatever. of days. Uh, yeah, It's I also think, in yeah. the middle of the week. Do you really expect that many people to watch? Like, <laughs> It's not like it's a, a holiday week. No, but you say that, but I mean, my Dolby screen was, if not sold out, nearly sold out. And it was like a six o'clock showing on a Wednesday. Yeah, so some people they they take to happy hour uh pretty seriously huh yeah, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah sorry your average rating happy hours yeah um yeah i'm gonna say probably pretty high like 3.9 so close so close it, you have been so close on every single guess this week uh 4.0 i'm a man of the people yeah yeah 4.0 like which Tom is Street. that's definitely one of the highest that's probably the second highest of the summer um after spider-man huh yeah yeah, absolutely. There you go. All right, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It is in theaters. Uh, I do think that more people will watch it this weekend. And uh, I, yeah, I mean, do you expect it to make more than Fallout? Um, I don't know. Like, I, I, I kind of want to say yeah, but I just keep thinking of reasons that it might not, honestly. And so I, I'm, I'm a little wishy-washy on that one. I think it's definitely going to get the Maverick bump. Like, I think people... Maverick Hines? Yes, the Maverick. <laughs> He's going to promote uh, the movie. <laughs> yeah. the, the Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick bump and the Maverick Hines bump. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I think people have really kind of won, have been won over between like Mission, Possible Fallout and uh, Top Gun Maverick. I think they're really excited for this movie in a way that feels pretty palpable uh, compared to like other movies this summer that have been underperforming and just yeah. like feel like haven't really had that much uh build up or expectations um with that said i do think as you were mentioning earlier that is going to be hurt by coming out like in the dead heat of summer and having to compete uh not only with uh barbie but like with oppenheimer taking a lot of the imax and presumably dolby screens for this film mm-hmm. uh, that'll certainly probably hurt the box office in the long run i know tom cruise was like pissed about that um so yeah i don't know i I think it's gonna do really well i think it's definitely gonna be like top five of the summer grosser uh i don't think it's gonna be as as uh successful as top gun maverick no no i I, I highly doubt that definitely not domestically but i I shouldn't say definitely but i mean it's just it's not coming out at the right time (laughs) for that to happen but But, uh, i'm glad you did bring up though maverick hines since he did i do remember from our fallout conversation he mentioned that like he never really watched these movies before and he was kind of like hey you know what like he's i'm glad i did like he i think that they were it was a nice surprise like oh here's this action franchise that i never really took seriously and when he gave it a chance was like oh it's actually really cool and so you know i'm sure there are a lot of people who are like that honestly who've like oh i've heard of these movies but it's tom cruise who cares and they've been kind of since rogue nation and fallout have been like steadily getting into them so i think that's right now there is a maverick hines bump yeah, uh, I have been seeing a lot of people, uh, at least like on my Twitter feed and stuff, been like kind of rediscovering the first Mission Impossible, at, and probably because of the build up to this one, and just being like, "Wow, yeah, like that was like a really cool movie." Like, I, I feel like even like five years ago when Fallout came out, like I was saying, like people were kind of dismissing and being like, "Yeah, it's like lower tier Mission Impossible movies," but like now it's like, yeah, you know. Really solid stuff. De Palma hit out of the park. And I, yeah, I'm definitely glad. I, I, yeah, I'm glad I was like uh, almost as fond as, as, as I was uh, when I first saw it back when I was like a teenager. So, yeah, yeah, just a fun franchise, man. We'll be back next week to talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer. And mm. I think the real question is going to be, you know, which one are we going to talk about first? Right. It's going to be a that real is, war. 
Yeah, I really don't know because I genuinely don't know which I'll be able to see first. Yeah, I, I know I'll be seeing Barbie first because uh, sure. I'm seeing that Monday and then Oppenheimer I'm seeing the next day. So it's a Barb Oppenheimer kind of release. If I was a betting man, I presume we're going to do Barbie first, but uh, time will tell. Yeah, I mean, the letter B comes before O and so and sure. also ladies first. Yeah. And you know what that spells out? B.O. Which is box office. <laughs> I was gonna, I was like, where are you going with this? <laughs> All right. Well, until then, uh, have a fun vacation. Well, you deserve it. Hey. And uh, we'll be back next week to talk about those movies and more. From the Internet, California, I am John Agroni. And from the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Will Ashton. And this message will self-destruct five seconds. See you next time.